trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is a special shout-out to those of you who are uh, dipping your toe into the practice of wrong think. You don't have to be a true radical, although some will perceive you as such, simply for challenging some of the prevailing narratives, thinking for yourself, thinking clearly and independently during a time of crisis. Believe it or not, that is one of the highest duties of a citizen. And not a lot of people want to do it. You know what they'd prefer instead? Well, checks with their names on them. <laughs> we got that coming. Uh, how about uh, platitudes, pats on the back, telling them how great they are? Yeah, we all like that. We also like really soft, fluffy, euphemistic, I'm putting this in air quotes, truths that don't make us uh, have to really take any responsibility or take any kind of a stand. Now, that's just human nature at work. But if you're one of those rare individuals who is uh, willing to think outside the box, challenge the narrative, think for yourself, and, and speak up when you see that it's necessary, welcome to the wrong thinkers. Come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. And if you haven't done it already, click on the subscribe button and subscribe to this podcast because this is a show that I I do for the purpose of helping people better understand the world around them plus understand the influence that they have. Got some great stuff lined up today and uh, in no particular order. Well, <laughs> starting with the first one. Actually, we're going to talk a little bit about how this past year has been a very interesting year in that uh, we have seen how public health can be leveraged into unimaginable political control of a population. Now, if that sounds like, well, now you're engaging in hyperbole here, Bri, I want you to consider what was done in the name of public health over this last year. Sometimes we forget where we were a year ago when people were really starting to, to get frustrated, fed up with, with the lockdowns, with their businesses being shut down. I mean, it was, it was just a year ago that the first planning stages for the Utah business revival started to, uh, to kick in. And it was very controversial. What, people are going to meet? They're going to meet without masks? They're going to meet without official permission from someone who tells them, you know, it's okay or it's not okay? Yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. And there was, uh, there was some pretty angry opposition. And it was crazy because a lot of it came from people who were in power. So we're going to discuss how public health in quotation marks, is the health of the state. But before we go there, I want to share with you a memory that popped up on my Facebook feed from a year ago. And I just, I want to share this with you because I'd like you to evaluate how has this, uh, how has this aged? Is this something that seems to ring true a year later? This is from a writer by the name of Tom Cranawitter. And he's explaining the frustration that was growing this time last year. Tom says, whether due to the sheer necessities of life or from going stir-crazy, or maybe both, Americans are going to start coming out of their homes in increasing numbers. He says it's going to happen, no matter what politicians say about it. Just watch. Life will not be stopped by mere executive orders and bureaucratic edicts. 
You who occupy the ranks of government offices, he says, would be wise to think long and hard about how you will respond. The United States is large in acres and numerous in population. You, the chattering political class, produce nothing. And you, the chattering political class, have neither jail cells to hold the entire population nor the police power to arrest them all. You are on thin ice. He also points out, you who are in law enforcement, especially elected county sheriffs, who are dependent upon no governor, no legislature, and no other elected officials at any level of government, would be wise to reflect on how far executive orders and bureaucratic edicts stray from what you know to be morally right and the proper purpose of government. You in law enforcement, he says, have a choice. Execute draconian orders and edicts or protect the natural freedom and private property of fellow citizens. You in law enforcement can be agents for justice or agents for power-hungry politicians. And he says, know this, saying afterward, I was simply following orders, will not be accepted by your fellow citizens as an excuse for your contributions to injustice. So Tom Cranawitter concludes, all citizens, those in and out of government offices, should remember this critical moment. No one is forcing anyone who is sick or compromised in their health to leave their homes. No one. American, each American is free to protect his own health best he can, including self-isolation. But many other Americans, millions of others, are being prevented by government force from the work that human life requires. As Americans become more desperate, They become more likely to resist that force, and desperation is the matter of which revolutions are made. Now, I'm not trying to use this to justify what happened starting at the end of May last year with the riots, but I have to believe, in part, some of the violent pushback wasn't just, you know, these uh, neo-Marxists getting out there and stretching their wings for the first time. There were a lot of people who came out and and joined in the festivities because they were just sick and tired of being cooped up. And it's been interesting to see how the lockdowns have come and gone. They've ebbed and flowed. And, excuse me, the the, the powers that be still want to lock it down. That one of the most remarkable things that you can see today is that Michigan continues to have a really tough time despite maintaining the restrictions that they have had and and the the very harsh lockdown policies that they implemented. I mean, if you think back, even this time last year, Michigan earned national media coverage for the strictness of its restrictions. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer gave sweeping mandates that at one point even outlawed outdoor gardening. Remember this? You couldn't even buy seeds or garden supplies. Now Michigan has the highest cases per capita in the nation, 72% higher than the next highest state. Nearly three times the positivity rate than the national average. And here you have states like Texas and Florida that have listed almost all restrictions and in turn are seeing much better COVID outcomes. So what are they suggesting we do in Michigan? Well, (laughs) we need to just lock it down harder. This is the danger of people in power claiming that, uh, well, you know, we really have no other choice. The truth is they see no other choice because if they return those decisions to the people, give them good information, let the people make those choices for themselves instead of trying to control everybody, they lose that degree of control. And for some reason that is intolerable. I guess they've had their first 
taste of real authoritarian power. And, and clearly, in the case of Gretchen Whitmer and others, they've liked it. But the consequences don't always line up the way they'd like. And while I, I, I do sincerely feel bad for the people in Michigan who are dealing with, you know, this, this uh, much higher incidence of COVID cases, I wish more people could see what their government is doing for what it is and recognize that all of that lockdown, all of that flexing of authority has done nothing to slow the spread of the virus. All it does is prolong the misery, spread it out, and destroy things that, that really didn't have to be destroyed. I don't know. It's one thing to learn from your own mistakes, and I will always respect people who can do that. I think it's even wiser, though, if you can learn from other people's mistakes and not have to repeat them. So I hope that there are people paying attention who, you know, will, will not make this kind of mistake as we move forward. But you probably sense, as I do, that there's, there's a sense of something hanging in the balance right now. We're, we're, we're seeing those in power recognizing for the first time that people really are fed up. They're putting their foot down and saying, enough. And yet those in power still have that need, that, that pathological need to be obeyed, to see the submission. Kind of makes for an interesting situation. I've got an article here that I saw on lewrockwell.com this morning. This is from Thomas DiLorenzo. Why public health is the health of the state. This is a play on the uh, quote from uh, uh, Randolph Bourne, War is the health of the state. And it was an article published back in 1918. His essay explained how it's human nature to mostly ignore the state because the state during peacetime has almost no trappings <clears throat> to appeal to the common man's emotion. War, however is the all-purpose tool of the state to stir up the public's emotions in a way that motivates it to hand over to the state virtually unlimited powers, abandoning all constitutional constraints and to subsequently relinquish most of their supposedly cherished freedoms. But he warns, the state has other tricks up its sleeves in its never-ending quest for totalitarian control of society. And Thomas DiLorenzo warns, do not delude yourself. All states aspire to become totalitarian by nature. It's just a matter of time. We're going to come back to this excellent article in just a few moments. You can also find a link to it in the show notes, which you will find at thebrianheidshow.com. Take a note of the sponsors. Click on the button and subscribe to the podcast. Consider becoming a donor if you so are so inclined. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, <clears throat> our program is brought to you in part today by MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, and Pure-Light.com. Links are provided in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. These are wonderful sponsors. Please take the time to uh, contact them, let them know you're hearing their message, and to purchase what they're selling, if, if you are so inclined. So, I'm sharing this article here from Thomas DiLorenzo, Why Public Health is the Health of the State. Most of us have heard the phrase, War is the Health of the State, by Randolph Bourne. This is a little twist on Bourne's observation. And Thomas DiLorenzo points out, wars are very expensive. 
They generate anti-war movements, fierce political opposition, sometimes assassinations, and they can go very, very badly, as both Napoleon and Hitler learned when they foolishly invaded Russia. Now, other kinds of less risky to the state emergencies will often suffice as totalitarianism's propaganda-slash-brainwashing strategies. As the world has learned in the past year, a public health emergency or the perception of a fabricated and phony one can do the job just fine without the messiness and expenses of war. The reasons for this can be understood by reading the following passages from Randolph Bourne's famous essay where he says, where Thomas DiLorenzo says, I've substituted the words pandemic or public health in brackets for the word war. This is a pretty cool exercise and it translates very, very well. Quote, the Republican state has almost no trappings to appeal to the common man's emotion. The moment a pandemic is declared, however, the mass of the people, with the exception of a few malcontents, proceed to allow themselves to be regimented, coerced, deranged in all the environments of their lives. The citizen throws off his contempt and indifference to government, identifies himself with its purposes, and the state once more walks. Now, Thomas DiLorenzo says every single word of this perfectly of this is a perfectly accurate description of how Americans have behaved ever since the public health bureaucrats declared a pandemic. It was shocking how immediate millions of people so immediately agreed to be regimented, coerced, and deranged in all aspects of their lives. Of course, the fact that all of the dictates by the local government, many Mussolinis, were enforced by armed police also helped to convince Bubus Americanus that he must genuflect to the state. Bourne continues, quote, Public health is the health of the state. It automatically sets in motion throughout society those irresistible forces for uniformity, for passionate cooperation with the government coercing into obedience the numerical minority groups and individuals which lack the larger herd sense. The machinery of government sets and enforces the drastic penalties. The minorities are either intimidated into silence. Minorities are rendered sullen. End quote. Now, Tom DiLorenzo says those Americans who lack the herd sense regarding the Hitlerian, Hitlerian uh, dictates of Anthony Fauci and his ilk have been fired from their jobs, canceled from Facebook, Twitter, etc., and generally demonized as enemies of human civilization. Minorities have literally been silenced by the tech giants with no persuasion at all involved. Well-known drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that could have saved untold numbers of lives were effectively banned, and the common-sense approach of boosting one's immunity with vitamins D and C and zinc and half an hour of vitamin D-generating sunshine a day were either ignored or denounced as snake oil by the state the television networks, the laughingly called media in general, and many others who have prostituted themselves to the pharmaceutical industry. Once the public health bureaucracy declared a pandemic, DiLorenzo says millions of Americans instantly turned into mental infants, eager for the D.C. bureaucracy to become their real mommies and daddies and protect them from the big, bad coronavirus wolf. As Bourne explained, quote, there is in the feeling toward the state a large element of pure filial mysticism. The sense of insecurity, the desire for protection, sends one's desire back to father and mother. It's not for nothing that one state is still thought of as father or motherland. The pandemic has shown that nowhere under the shock of danger have these primitive childlike attitudes failed to assert themselves, end quote. Anthony Fauci, 
who went to medical school 60 years ago, never actually practiced medicine himself, who has been a tenured federal bureaucrat for more than half a century, and who parades around in public wearing two masks, despite having been vaccinated, became everyone's, every American's all-knowing, protective father. His Stepford wifeish half-body scarf-wearing sidekick, Dr. Deborah Burks, became everybody's stand-in for mother. Every state and local government in America did exactly what these two bureaucratic weasels demanded they do. Listen to Dr. Fauci, Joe Biden has repeatedly demanded. Anyone asking for a second opinion, opinion was either ignored or smeared as an enemy of society. Now, Tom DiLorenzo says there are myriad stories of doctors who did offer second opinions who were fired or punished in other ways. Like for giving a speech in which she argued that the CDC death count numbers were not reliable since they conflated death with COVID and death from COVID. A physician friend of his was of Thomas DiLorenzo's was banned from referring her patients to the hospital she'd been associated with. Now, today, the CDC admits only 6% of the half million or so COVID deaths in the U.S. can legitimately be called death from COVID. He says, as with war, the state attempts to crush all dissent when it comes to its public health emergencies. As Bourne further wrote, quote, dissent is like sand in the bearings. Any difference with unity becomes the, turns rather, the whole vast impulse toward crushing it. The herd becomes divided into the hunters and the hunted. And the pandemic becomes not only a technical game, but a sport as well. End quote. Ah, unity, says Tom, Lo- Tom DiLorenzo, the new mating call of the party of Biden. Descent from unity's official truth, and you, in fact, will be hunted down, possibly lose your job, or have your life destroyed. Now, he says, for any readers who still believe the government lie that we are the government, and therefore the government would never manipulate us in one of these ways, he says, I recommend another online essay, this one by econ- economic historian Robert Higgs, entitled The Song That Is Irresistible. In that essay, Higgs states the truism that states, by their very nature, are perpetually at war. Not always against foreign foes, of course, but always against their own subjects. The state's most fundamental purpose, the activity without which it cannot exist, is robbery. We call it taxation. While it pretties itself up ideologically by giving it that different name, taxation, and striving to sanctify its intrinsic crime as permissible and socially necessary. Bingo. Right on, Robert Higgs. And Thomas DiLorenzo says, or as yours truly has written on numerous occasions, the purpose of government is for those who run it to plunder those who do not. He says the state, by the way, sanctifies mass murder, thinly disguised by calling it war, and by enlisting legions of intellectual prostitutes to dream up myriad excuses and rationales for its mass murdering sprees. Yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty direct. Some would even say harsh. But the question is, is, is he wrong about this? I don't necessarily think he is. So I'll take that, uh, I'll take that harsh <laughs> stance with the understanding that uh, it's, it's a, a truth that we probably should all be aware of and therefore at least cautious when someone in authority comes to you and says, hmm, there seems to be a tragedy taking place. I'm going to need more of your money and more power. Because that's exactly what happens. We've just got to be more skeptical. And, and, and this is the key. Where possible, we've got to be capable of withholding our consent. 
Now, here's a subject for a whole other show. I won't have time to go into this one today, but how much easier is it to withhold your consent when you yourself aren't beholden to government for your daily bread? Whether it's in the form of, you know, food stamps, the EBT card, or, you know, stimulus checks, or whatever, maybe unemployment benefits. I'm not trying to put anybody down for finding themselves in these situations, but I'm saying a lot of times we put ourselves under the control of the state simply by agreeing to take whatever it's offering as if uh, we couldn't do it without them. I think we can do better. I think we have to do better if you're serious about remaining free. And if you're not, well, just keep doing what you're doing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here. I have to do this. I feel like I just kind of went on a little bit of a rant for the first couple segments, and I, I want to... I want to steer us back towards something positive, just because there is a lot positive happening in our world today. It's very easy to forget. I know this as well as anybody. If I look for the negative, that's all I'm going to see, because there's plenty of it out there. There's a lot of good, too. And I have two essays from Jeff Minnick that I'm linking in today's show notes. Jeff uh, writes very regularly for intellectualtakeout.org. I like to pop on over there every single day and, and read you know, three or four of the new articles that have been posted, they really have a great uh, stable of writers who cover a wide, wide variety of topics. Jeff is one of my favorite guys because he uh, he's very observational about a lot of stuff that I think most of us can relate to. Maybe Maybe we're just at a similar stage of life. I liked his essay on the goodness and gifts of gratitude. And I'm going to preface what I'm about to share with you uh, with with something that uh, my wife and I have learned in this last year. And and this actually, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, make people slam their minds shut when I point this out, but uh, um, one, of, uh, one of my church's leaders counseled back, uh, this would have been around Thanksgiving time, when a lot of people were struggling with the idea of, oh, you know, we can't travel, we're not supposed to go see family, we're supposed to, you know, still stay locked down and isolated from people in order to slow the spread of COVID. He said, instead of dwelling on the negative and, you know, the the unrest and other things we were seeing around us at that time, focus on gratitude. List off the things for which you are grateful, which a lot of people did over, you know, various social media outlets. It worked. It's it's remarkable, and it seems like, oh, it's got to be some kind of a Jedi mind trick. But no, if you take the time to focus on things for which you are grateful, the problems and the stressors, the things that have us, you know, pulling our hair out, inching toward despair, suddenly seem to be brought back into perspective and into uh, at least a, a more manageable degree of importance in our lives. Here's how Jeff Minnick describes it. He says, a young man I know drives to work from Front Royal to the traffic-tangled roads of Northern Virginia. He recently told a mutual acquaintance that he uses the hour-long trek to prepare his mind for the day's tasks. On the way home, however, he spends that same drive decompressing from work, 
and readying himself to cheerfully greet his wife and young children. When he arrives home, his first act is to tell his wife how much he appreciates all she has done for her their family that day. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I wish I'd possessed his wisdom when I was his age. In the movie Cool Hand Luke, the warden of a prison strikes an inmate. Luke, with his club, and then utters one of the film's best-known lines, What we got here is a failure to communicate. Jeff Minnick says, Today, we often have a failure to appreciate. Most of us, he says, myself included, often fail to express our gratitude for the gifts bestowed on us by others. An employee goes above and beyond the call of duty by putting together a special report for her boss, delivering vital information well ahead of a deadline. But she receives no more recognition than a nod of the head. The wife who spent all day with the children hands them over to her husband as soon as he steps through the door without asking one question about his day. The grown children who receive money or gifts for their birthdays forget all about writing a thank you note or making a phone call of appreciation. In fact, he says, in my case, I've frequently failed to say thank you for good deeds and gifts I've received at the hands of others. I've wished many times I could have thanked my, I would have thanked my wife more often for her love and care for me and our children. I wish I'd told my mother before she died how grateful I was that she taught me the values of hard work, perseverance, tender love, and forgiveness. I hope that others who have influenced me, teachers, employers, friends, even family members, know of my gratitude for the lessons they imparted and the help they provided. He says, there are two things I've learned about gratitude in old age. First, when our loved ones die and you wish you told them how much good they'd done for you, it's too late. And he says, as I write these words, I'm thinking of an old college professor and good friend who surely knew of his powerful impact on my life, but I never directly expressed my thanks to him before he died. Second, he says, while those of us who have helped us are still alive, it's never too late to express our appreciation for them. He says, in his ninth year at Southwest Junior High School in Forsyth County, North Carolina, Mr. Darden taught us a a block class of literature and geography. He was an excellent teacher. And 30 years later, when I began teaching, Jeff Minnick says, I recreated some of his projects in my own classes. After another 10 years of teaching, I wrote him a note of thanks for all he had done for us. He replied with a kind letter, happily surprised, I think, that someone had remembered his efforts, and he also encouraged me in my own teaching. Expressing gratitude for a job well done is really quite simple. He says, suppose the employee I mentioned above works overtime to get you the information you need. Pay your compliments on her hard work with a personal note or even some flowers, as well as a spoken thank you. When a spouse returns at the end of a long day, offer them a word of appreciation. If Grandma, Uncle John, or anyone else sends you a gift, take the five minutes needed to write out a thank you note, address an envelope, slap on a stamp, put it in the mailbox. There are plenty of websites explaining the great blessings of bestowing such appreciation, not just for the recipient of the appreciation, but for you as well. Expressing gratitude doesn't just help the receiver. It also makes the givers healthier and happier. It deepens our relationships. It affects our physical health, allowing us to sleep better and increasing our energy levels. When we sincerely offer such appreciation, we strengthen the bonds of families, our enterprises, our communities, even our country. And he says, even more importantly, it's the right thing to do. I think he's right on the money here. I think this is, this is dead on. I love the part where he talks to about his teacher, Mr. Darden. 
And, and maybe it's because I do what I do. Um, I know there are plenty of other people out there in every aspect of life who are contributing. I just want to add my voice to Jeff Minix here and tell you, there, there are no sweeter words than when someone acknowledges you have had impact on my life. And I mean good impact. You know, you have ruined my life. Those aren't the words you really want to hear. But when someone says, because of you, my life has improved or I have seen, you know, I've found direction or found purpose. It's really one of the greatest compliments you can pay to a person. Why? Because when it's all said and done, this is just my opinion, but for what it's worth, when it's all said and done, I think when we reach the end of our lives, the last thing we're going to be concerned about was, uh, hey, is my car clean enough? Is it, is it a new enough model? Is it, is it uh, you know, status worthy enough to demonstrate what a success I was in my life? Do, does everybody who's going to be attending my funeral, do they understand the square footage of my home and the proximity of the neighborhood that, that I live in are all indicators of what a successful person I've been? Could you please make sure and hand out these bank statements to each and every person who comes to my funeral so they can understand, wow, he had a lot of money in the bank. Look at that retirement nest. Look at the life insurance payout. Wow. No. That's not what matters to the person who is ready to graduate to whatever comes next. You know what does matter? This is based on actual studies of, of the, the concerns, the fears that people express when they are in the process of dying. They want to know that their life meant something. And it doesn't mean that they have to have had a statue made of them or a park named after them or, you know, some other huge outward manifestation of, you know, a monument to them. They just want to know that they have left a mark on the world, that the people around them were were impacted in some tangible, positive way that will be remembered after they're gone. That makes sense, right? Do you want to get a feel for, for what I'm talking about? I know this kind of sounds a little bit uh, morbid. Maybe some people wouldn't be, be down to do this. But if you want to see where your priorities are in life, I would encourage you to, to, to do this little exercise. I was encouraged to do this a few years ago, and it really is a very powerful thing to open up your mind and see where are my priorities. And it's simply this. Write your eulogy. I know, there may be things that uh, you don't have done yet in your life. Well, okay, put those things in your eulogy. These are the things that, uh, that mattered. These are the things that I worked to accomplish. You might be surprised what you learn about yourself. And it's, it's crazy, but that's the, that's the first time I ever realized how little all the material stuff really matters in the long run. Because as I'm sure you can, can appreciate, you don't take any of that physical stuff with you. No luggage rack on the hearse. No place for a little U-Haul trailer to hook on as you make the trip to the graveyard. But it starts with gratitude. I'll have a link to Jeff Minnick's article. There's another one in there, too, that I would, I would strongly encourage you to take a look at. The Death of Reason in the Age of Make-Believe. In fact, I'll touch on this in the next segment, but I'm going to primarily leave that to, for your discovery. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, two, yes, it's a double bonus of uh, articles from Jeff Minnick in today's show notes. Well worth your while. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You've stuck it out this far. You must be made of some pretty stern stuff. Thanks again for being part of my growing audience. If you're finding value in the articles that I'm sharing or or whatever insights I'm able to offer, please consider letting a friend know about this. Please consider subscribing to the podcast. You can do it at thebrianheidshow.com. So I, I mentioned in the last segment, uh, I had a couple of different articles in today's show notes from Jeff Minnick. Just a couple of excerpts from this one entitled, The Death of Reason in the Land of Make-Believe. And you've probably noticed that uh, th- there are people telling us things right to our face. Like, I, I think back to last summer when uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, was burning. And here's a CNN reporter standing in front of these burned-out buildings and saying, it was a mostly peaceful protest. Wow. It just it, it, it boggles the mind, but, but such are the times we live in. And Jeff Minnick says, okay, in my driveway sits my nine-year-old Honda Civic, which I purchased two years ago after a deer demolished my Accord. He talks about the fingerprints of his grandchildren dotting the rear interior window. The carpets and seats are screaming for a vacuum. A large reddish dent mars the paneling above the rear tire on the passenger side. And the exterior has long needed a good scrubbing. In other words, his car is a mess. But he says, suppose you and I are looking at the car, and I'm describing it as a white limousine with gold trim, long as a 12-passenger van with large, comfortable seats, immaculate upholstery, a champagne bar, a television, and surround sound stereo. You glance at me to see if I'm joking, but I appear perfectly serious. Not only that, but then I insist that you defy the evidence of your own eyes, accept my description, and agree I'm driving a limousine. Failure to do so will bring dire consequences upon you. And he says, this is what life is like. Welcome to America in 2021. Because today, a number of our politicians, bureaucrats, academics, and reporters repeatedly ask us to deny reason and reality and accept with blind faith ideas we know to be false and actions we know to be either useless or wrong. Now, in some instances, the demands of these illusionists are trivial and often unintentionally humorous. Rather, Uh, Cancel culture has apparently erased Pepe Le Pew because this cartoon character promotes rape. Okay, the publisher, a publisher rather, has banished some Dr. Seuss books for supposed racism. A high school in Portland picked an evergreen tree as its new mascot, but then some on the board wondered if that tree might not bring to mind lynching and in doing so offend black students. Other demands flying in the face of reason tend to have greater consequences. Critical race theory insists America is a hotbed of evil, injustice, and systemic racism. Highly paid CRT speakers and workshop leaders many of them racists themselves in their contempt for white people, are worming their way into our corporations, schools, and the military. And he says, meanwhile, those of us who remember the civil rights struggles of the post-World War II era can only shake our heads in astonishment at what's now perceived as racism. This past March, the U.S. government took into custody 19,000 minors on our southern border, a record high number. But the present administration and their minions in the mainstream media refuse to describe the ongoing border mayhem as a crisis. We're told to believe that men can become women and women men. We're told to believe on January 6th, 2021, an insurrection occurred in our capital. We're told to believe there was nothing questionable about our recent election. On and on it goes. 
He talks about how the, this demand that people embrace fiction and ignore reality actually has a long history. You saw it in the Soviet Union and other communist governments of Eastern Europe. They all used propaganda and force to suppress or twist the truth. The Chinese Communist Party continues to do so to this day. And those brave people who buck against government-authorized falsehoods are declared people are declared enemies of the people, rather, and either imprisoned or executed. Isn't that something? Kids like to play pretend. Communist dictators and uh, the upper echelon of their followers, they like to play pretend too, but they know that everybody has to, to maintain the fiction that, no, 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 they're telling us only the truth. At least the kids know they're playing make-believe. They understand the difference between real and unreal. Can we say the same thing about some of the adults among us regarding their own fantasies? Interesting stuff here. By the way, uh, shifting gears, my kids, in particular, one of my sons, has discovered Dirty Jobs with Micro. I think he used to watch it on occasion, but um, he recently subscribed to the Discovery Channel, and uh, and he really loves Dirty Jobs with Micro. Now, I've sat down and watched a few episodes with him, and I totally understand why this show was such a huge hit. Micro is a, an eminently relatable guy. He's very down-to-earth. He's humble, too. I mean, he gets in there in some of these jobs. Holy cow. If you feel like, man, my job sucks, you need to watch a few episodes of Dirty Jobs and realize if, if, you're, <laughs> if your work doesn't require you doing what some of these folks have to do, you're, you're very fortunate indeed because some of them are just, wow, hard and disgusting, but they're also very necessary. And they create value for other people by being willing to do jobs that nobody else will do. Well, Micro recently weighed in on the argument for a $15 an hour minimum wage. And I think this is a guy who, who doesn't just talk the talk. Okay, He's not just another pretty face on the television. He seems to actually be pretty thoughtful in, in his take on this. There's an article here from Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education talking about a recent interview with Fox Business where Micro emphasized that the that uh, minimum wage hikes take away the first rung on the ladder that many workers eventually climb. Now, you've heard me talk about this. I've shared commentaries from many other economists and, and commentators who, who have made the case, look, you want to cause unemployment? Absolutely. Mandate a very high minimum wage and employers will have no choice but to eliminate positions. Because it ain't free doing business. But here's how Mike Rowe describes it. He says, I want everybody who works hard and plays fair to prosper. I want everybody to be able to support themselves. But if you just pull the money out of midair, you're going to create other problems. Listen, this is the key. He says, there is a ladder of success that people climb. Some of those jobs that are out there for $7, $8, $9 an hour... He says, in my view, they're not intended to be careers. They're simply not intended to be full-time jobs. They're rungs on a ladder. He says, those jobs are ways for people to get experience in the workforce, doing a thing that might not necessarily pay you as much as you'd like, but nevertheless serves a real purpose. He says, I worry that the path to a skilled trade can be compromised when you offer an artificially high wage for, I hate the expression, but an unskilled job. That is some serious common sense at work there. And by the way, uh, Rose Warning is, is borne out by the statistics, and Brad goes into great detail on this. 
the fight for 15, you know, that's, I know it sounds noble and it sounds like people are really, you know, trying to do what's right for the workers, but you can't help uplift people by taking the first rung of the career ladder away. And as, as harsh as these words may sound to some people's ears, some jobs are not worth five bucks an hour. They still need to be done. And I think it would be better for the employer as well as those seeking employment, particularly those looking for entry-level employment, if the government was completely out of the minimum wage business. Let the employer and employee negotiate, come up with a reasonable, acceptable wage for both of them. But keep in mind that employee should not be looking at this as, well, I am now a dishwasher at such and such cafe. I am set. This is going to be my career. One day I'll, I'll have a gold watch and I'll have a pension and retirement. No. That's the first rung on the ladder, as Mike Rowe describes it. It's, it's supposed to lead you to higher and better things. But first, you've got to get around that catch-22. Well, we'd like to hire you, but you need experience. Oh, well, how will I get experience? Well, somebody's going to have to hire you. <laughs> how do we make that work? I know it runs counter to, to a lot of people's uh, sensibilities to think that uh, this is one of those areas where government just should step back. They perceive, well, there might be unfairness. Somebody might take advantage. And, and it's true, somebody might. But this should be a function of the market and where nobody is marching employees into these businesses at gunpoint here. You will work here. You, you will work over there. No, it's a voluntary thing. So if you want to apply for a job and they're simply not offering what you're willing to work for, you are absolutely free to walk out that door and take your labor elsewhere. I mean, do you ever stop and think about uh, why was it that uh, for a long time up in the, uh, the oil fields there in North Dakota, why was it that fast food restaurants, I'm talking McDonald's and Burger King, were paying close to 20 bucks an hour for beginning fast food workers? It's because there was a shortage of people who were willing to go to those faraway places in North Dakota and work and staff those restaurants. And there was a, there was a need, you know, supply and demand. When demand is high... And the demand for labor in this case was high. That's where the, the prices go to for labor. Where demand is low, there's lots of people available to do a job. Yeah, it's going to pay less. This is The Brian Hyde Show.